Today is January 29th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Nagana Go, Mekoche, Chase, Tukom, Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bogani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chiniki Bears Paw Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status, and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders have been so kind to me on my red robe journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot Mokinstis as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satin Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Nice Dene. My father is so Canadian, I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act imposed status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island. And my Dene nation is a visitor to this area, Clincho Tine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I know as I walk down my red road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening, watching, and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you. NativeYYC at gmail.com. Send me your comments, your questions. Also, giving a review helps on whichever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcast podcasts and pin posts on social media. <clears throat> so with that, I'd like to introduce my friend. Alice, would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Sure. My name is Alice Lam. I was also born and raised in Calgary to Chinese parents who were refugees from the Vietnam War. Um, our family has been a part of the Chinese diaspora story for generations with my grandpa fleeing China in the 40s to go to Vietnam to kind of start his life. And then there was oppression and um, war that he found in Vietnam as well. And then eventually my parents made it as refugees to Canada. And so um, my cultural background, I speak Cantonese fluently. And so I'm very much involved in the Calgary Chinatown community, something that I rediscovered when I moved back to Calgary in 2014 and learned a lot about systemic racism and that's, things like that. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, in my day job, I work in commercial real estate as a property manager, but my passion is volunteering in the Calgary community and starting fun projects to help people see a different way of doing things. So yeah, hope we get to touch on it today. That's exactly what I wanna talk about with you. And um, So just to give people some perspective, I have COVID. Uh, this is, I started on Sunday, today's Saturday. So I'm actually, if I start muting myself and coughing or something, that's where it's coming from. But um, frankly, I think I did okay. So it, this, I think I have the Omicron variant because it, it's just literally a head cold. <clears throat> so been trying to, today was the first day I like brush my hair and put on makeup, put on some <laughs> earrings, 
and I, I started talking, I started doing my introduction. I'm like, I, I'm back in the real world again. So it's been uh, really funny for me. And, and, and where are you right now? Can you tell us a little bit about your setup? Yeah, I'm currently actually doing this podcast from Good Neighbor, which is a community based volunteer run market in downtown Calgary. Um, it's located on Fifth Avenue and it's pay what you want thrift store basically. So we receive donations of clothing, shoes, books and plants and food and we distribute it. Anybody who can afford to pay, they can pay whatever amount they'd like. All the money that we raise goes to buying food for the community. So it's a sister project of the Calgary Community Fridge. Mm, that sounds like a great thing. I hope that other people hear that and go, oh, um, and they're going to wonder who your clientele is. Yeah, we have a quite a reach. When we started the community fridge, we really weren't sure who we would get, but um, the fridge up in Crescent Heights has been around for about a year. And so typically we see about 50% are low-income seniors and from all different uh, cultural backgrounds. And then 25% are immigrant families. A lot of them are single parents. And the rest of them are basically younger, low-income folks, whether they are unhoused or, you know, they're just in a they're have a lower income and so that's kind of the mix wow no that sounds amazing i um i was wondering because you're in east village you're or not really but kind of like in that Close, yeah yeah so i i didn't know what kind of clientele you were getting and um i didn't want to assume i just had no idea yeah it is a very similar so that's up in crescent heights and then down here at um good neighbor we're only open three days a week and luckily it's kind of on days that we found out that um, other server providers aren't open. So, you know, there's some agencies that do service provision or clothing provision on Monday, Tuesdays. So there's nothing for the rest of the week. So we kind of help fill that gap a little bit, but over here, it's probably more like still 50% seniors. We get a lot of elderly low-income folks, especially because we're located right beside a lot of subsidized housing. Um, but then of course, a bigger proportion, probably 30, 35% are um, unhoused individuals who are either in encampments or staying at the DI or Alpha House, that kind of thing. Right. Do you have like naloxone on, on hand or Narcan? Yeah, absolutely. Right so we, um, a lot of our co-founders, a few of our co-founders are um, nurses. And so that was really important to us when we started this was to include harm reduction as a part of our model. And so we provide Narcan. Um, we also provide Narcan training on Thursdays, the Alex is here. So they are able to provide like official training for folks who are intimidated by the intravenous kind of um, style of Narcan. Uh, naloxone, I, I think. Uh, naloxone. Narcan, yeah, Narcan is the nasal spray and I get yeah, it. So we folks. don't have the nasal yeah. one, we have the syringe one, yeah. Yeah, and, and naloxone is a lot more intimidating. Of course it's free, but I do, I do <laughs> grab them because I ask people, sometimes people just want clean needles. So, yeah, exactly. you know, when they come with three and that's, that's that. So I, I really appreciate you giving us that background because I think that like, I try so hard on this podcast to talk about how important it is for everybody to have naloxone on them. And if you're a first mm -hmm. nation uh, to get uh, the Narcan, because we're allowed to have one a day. So I have a pharmacist that I, I go in and one, once a day try to grab that, but it is hard because my work schedule doesn't work with their um, when they're open and closed. So I'm actually thinking I have to go to another pharmacy um, closer to my work and, and set it up there because it's just not working. It takes an hour and a half for me to go from work to home yeah. and they're closed by then. So it's been Absolutely, hard. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, that's getting off topic. Um, this, this is just a really great initiative. How long have you been open for? 
So Good Neighbor has been open since July of last year. So about seven or eight months. And then um, the community fridge opened in uh, August of 2020. So about a year and a half now. Right on. And uh, who are your funders? So we don't really have funders. Our funders are you and me. So basically individuals were totally um, funded I would say 80% through GoFundMe. So people giving five, 10, $40 donations. And then, um, yeah, that's the same thing with the store. We're funded through selling our items. So every purchase that people make, whether it's a dollar or $20, that all goes towards our rent and then anything surplus is um, donated or used to buy food. Right on. Uh, so we'll, what we'll do is we'll put that link in with our podcast so that people sure. can make that donation if they so choose. What yeah. are some other the projects that you want to uh, discuss and talk about today? Well, I recently, I think what caught your eye was the work that we've been doing in Chinatown. We've, um, I've been volunteering there for a number of years with an organization, a nonprofit called I Love YYC Chinatown, which is a youth-led, I say youth sparingly because we're, I'm like no longer in that category. <laughs> I think everybody started as like, you know, in their 20s and now we're, you know, adults. But um, it's been very interesting over the past five years kind of our progress with working with the city and working with the community in terms of a lot of healing and a lot of anger and a lot of trauma. And so um, I'd love to talk about Chinatown some more in the context of Calgary um, and kind of what the community has been dealing with. Yeah, and that's what I really want to talk about too, because uh, so prior to the pandemic, I was working on a project that uh, things kind of were, were going in a weird way with it anyway, but it was talking about Eastside Village racism and trying to educate some of the older seniors on the topic of racism when it came to yeah. um, anti-Asian hate, but also anti-Indigenous hate. And ironically, since then to now, I feel like even I've learned so much more about the anti-racist or anti-Asian racism. And, yeah. you know, I, I really think that it was so highlighted in an awful way in some ways, but I'd, I'd love for you to talk about how this pandemic has impacted it and what you were doing prior to the pandemic and after the pandemic and just tell us what you're experiencing right now. Well, I think the story would start with me, you know, being a kid growing up in a growing up in Chinatown, like Chinatown was one of the few places that had um, subsidized housing that my parents could get into as low income refugees and we were toddlers at that time. So we lived in the community, but was what was really great was, you know, having zero language skills. My parents were able to easily find a job in Chinatown, but also get groceries, go see a doctor. You know, it had the cultural appropriate um, items. And there was also um, nonprofits at the time focused on working with the Chinese population. So providing social services in a language appropriate manner. And so I we eventually we moved out of Chinatown and to Marlboro and kind of grew up in the Northeast and still very much went to Chinatown every weekend, right? For groceries, for Chinese school, that kind of thing. As a kid, honestly, I was bused to a predominantly Caucasian school in the Southwest that was higher income and we were very low income, but it was one of those things where it's like, you don't wanna to go to school, don't take your kid to school in the Northeast, they're gonna turn into gangbangers and all that. So lots of self-inflicted prejudice, right? And um, I was placed in the school that was deemed, you know, the right school, um, you're gonna grow up to be successful, like really perpetuating the model minority kind of thing. Like this is the right thing to do if you want your kid to survive in this white world, basically. Mm -hmm. And it was horrible. Like I wish 
there was no other way. Like I was the only person of color, like in the school, there was a lot of um, bullying. And I think a lot of it like made me really resent my cultural heritage for a long time. Like I hated being different, you know? Yeah. Um, I resented my parents. Like, why couldn't I just go to school with my friends that I met at Chinese school? Why couldn't we all eat the same things at lunch? Like, why do I get made fun of for the shape of my eyes or the, you know, the clothes that I wear? We were also poor, so that didn't help, right? Like we didn't have the right <laughs> You clothes. fit in so great. <laughs> yeah. Like the right, I remember, yeah, just being like, oh, you don't shop at the Gap? And I was like, we don't have that at Marlboro. I don't even know what that is. You know, like Marble Mall did not have the Gap or Jacob. I know. <laughs> and looking back, it's funny, but it's just like kids can be so cruel. And I oh. think it really made me really resent my parents because I was just like, oh, you can't speak English. I have to translate everything for you. Um, we're poor. We don't get all the, to do all the same things, you know, like kids summer vacation or winter vacation would happen that everybody would come back tanned and with like corn, you know, those like white kid cornrows that they would get from their Mexico trip or Hawaii trip. Every and, time, like, okay, yeah. so for folks who are not from Calgary, you don't <laughs> understand how ridiculous it is to have all of these little white blonde girls coming back from Mexico with their hair done in dreads. And it, yeah. it is every January 4th. My birthday yeah. is January 4th. Oh, so <laughs> I know we all go back to school, hate my birthday because that means we're all going back to school, but all yeah. of the kids have this as if like, and, and good that they paid some Mexican to do their hair, but holy, it's just like, that's so normal here because so normal. mom and dad yeah. have way too much oil money and this is what they do. It was quite the time and it was, yeah, it was, uh, we were also, because we lived so far from the school, we were late every day from the, for school and we got those pink slips every day, you know, and the, awesome. the judgment that we got from the admin people, like I will never, it just felt so bad. And then also they couldn't pick us up. So we were always the ones sitting, you know, it's 4.30, we're sitting outside the school and kids bullied us for that too, because they lived across the street from the school, right? It was like, your parents are abandoning you. You're not, you know, and I hate it. Like, it was just horrible. I would like, when my parents actually showed up, I would get in the car and I would just be like crying, just like, I hate that we do that, you know? And I felt so bad for them. Like they didn't know now that I'm like 34 and processing this, you know, I was like, damn, they just tried to do what they thought was right. You know, like they, um, they didn't mean any harm by it. They wouldn't be able to understand the situation because they didn't have to endure that specific situation. But it really, as I grew older, I really, I was like, I don't want to learn my language. I don't want to learn. I don't want to speak Chinese at all. I want to be white. I want to be, you know, it just like turned into this like really toxic mentality. And then, you know, self-hate that is internalized yeah. racism. You yeah. just talked about it so well. I talk about internalized racism in every single podcast, but you just absolutely put it together of how shitty white supremacy is on people of color growing up. You just did it. Thank you. It well, it's just like this feeling of otherness, right? It's this feeling of being left out. And then also our parents being, you know, their products of trauma from their generation, from their parents, and having to endure war, having to do deal with their, you know, they were also the other kids in their country of their birth country, Vietnam. They had a very similar situation, but they were also in a, you know they grew up in the Chinese part of Vietnam, you know, it was very normal to just like, well, Chinese people, as they were fleeing, you know, they had resources, they could go to a country like Vietnam, buy up property, buy land, colonize, you know, well, take over entire communities, right? Like, and 
no Vietnamese people would enter, no one would, you know, they could exist completely speaking only Chinese with the people in the neighborhood until basically the commun like the Vietnam War happened and the communists took over and then all that was dismantled. They were forced to learn Vietnamese. Like that was, that's basically how it happened, but they had to go through a lot of stuff too and they don't talk about it, right? Like they, it's just like, they don't talk about being in prison. They don't talk about like the abuse that they suffered. Like there was a lot of bad wartime shit that happened that um, I really wish I, my parents would talk about it or my uncles because I feel like they internalize it and they, you know, we have just like any ethnic community, we have our struggles with um, substance abuse, with just, you know, there's not a ton of support with mental health. There's no PTSD training or healing or therapy at all. And so they just dealt with it in whatever they, way they've known and yeah. It's been yeah. a struggle, but flash forward, you know, I ended up living, going to university and um, living abroad for a while. And I became like, it was funny because ironically, every country that I moved to, I would be like, where's the Chinatown? Where's my people? You know, and <laughs> even though I spent so many years kind of like trying to get away from it, but of course, naturally I'm in a foreign country and I'm like, I'm like, Ooh, I want to find people who like eat the same things as me and stuff like that. And it was it wasn't until um, I lived in New York and started volunteering in the Chinatown there that I was like, hmm, wonder if Calgary Chinatown has these similar types of communities. Like I just really stayed away from it for as long as possible. And when I moved back to Calgary, um, I met a lady who you probably know, Teresa Wupa, yep. who was, yeah, she worked, you know, in the legislature, she was an MLA and she's done a ton of anti-racism work. She's the founder of the ACT Foundation. And Oh, by the way, we highlight that in this podcast oh, awesome. at the end. Yeah, because it's, uh, you know, you're supposed to report racism. And if we don't yeah, report absolutely. racism, we're well, not we going to get data, anywhere. Yeah. yeah, exactly. People don't think it exists. And that's a big part of it. Like, I came in, I was like, you know, just doing like tax filing for low-income seniors. I was like, this is so nice. How wholesome. Like, this is, you know, what a perfect community. Nothing could go wrong. And Teresa was like, no, girl, let me educate you on what we've been going through for the past half a century right you know and she, yeah and that's when I remember like I'll never forget the conversation she was like well you know you seem like an individual who's like community oriented I want to just tell you about some projects that I'm involved with and she like laid down the history of Chinatown for me and I was like oh my goodness like I why need don't to you share a little bit because I try to now and then but yep. the biggest one I try to tell people was that um, Ralph Klein, so he, uh, I think he married uh, a Chinese woman. I can't, or no, oh. she didn't. He was raised by them. Sorry. Um, that's what happened. Anyway, he was the first mayor to just finally do garbage pickup and pay yeah. Chinatown. He was the first mayor. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people can't believe that up until like basically the 80s, there was no like services, no garbage pickup in Chinatown. Um, this is Calgary's third Chinatown, the one that you know about uh, along the river. Um, prior to that, there is one location kind of behind the current location of the Calgary Public Library, the new public library behind City Hall. That one burned down. The second location is basically kind of across the street from the CP rail lines on 10th Avenue. It's now a parkade. And basically, this was just boarding housing, right? It was, you can think of it as like hostel situation, like a building that had um, little single occupancy rooms maybe, or it was a giant room with just like mats on the ground, whatever. People would work there as they came back from like railroad camps or whatever, um, working on ranch 
branches, things like that. And there was also like associations. So these are called mutual aid associations or fraternity type of associations where you would basically go there to get support from your fellow Chinese people because there was no services for Chinese at the time. So they would help you translate a letter or get a job or maybe, you know, here's some money for food. Here's a place to stay, right? Things like that. And they helped each other. Um, and then finally, uh, because with any kind of development or any speculation of development, um, CP, like the railroad or the train company was basically like, hey, we're going to turn this into a global trains the future. We're going to turn this into the global, beautiful, like, um, you know, train station. There will be shopping and apartments and it's going to be gorgeous. And so, of course, all the landlords were like, OK, sweet, we're going to sell the land and sell the property so you guys don't have a home anymore. And so a group of Chinese businessmen, they were just like, we're tired of constantly being kicked out of places, right? This is kind of our situation in Canada when you talk about land ownership and property ownership, right? Like it's always these people who have the resources to own property that get to decide what happens with the community. And so this is why home ownership is such like people fetishize home ownership in Canada, right? Like, it's just like, I need to get a down payment. I need to get a house because that's the only security you have. Yeah. When talking to folks in countries in Europe that have social housing, it's like, would you ever move? And they're like, no, I don't have to. Like, this is secure. I know I can live here forever, right? Like, I don't need to buy my own property to ensure that I have a home. Mm -hmm. And so they basically petitioned um, the city at the time, Chinese people were not allowed to have property or have business licenses or build anything and so they petitioned and they were all you know these are folks that like were born in Canada but they were still regarded as second great citizens. citizens at the time they didn't have citizenship even though they were born here they couldn't vote they couldn't do anything but they spoke English like could you I couldn't even imagine like that situation for them but they kept going and there, you know, there's a parkade downtown called the James Short Parkade. It's named after the James Short Junior High School or James Short, who, you know, was seen as like a pretty active and engaged Calgarian. He helped start the CBE. He helped start the University of Calgary. He was on, he was always on boards and stuff like that. Um, and he lived in Chinatown where basically the cultural center is. And at the time when these Chinese businessmen were like, hey, we're going to buy a piece of Center Street and build a building for ourselves he was like no you're not like this is not um a place for Chinese like the language that was used in the papers it was like heathens they're unclean unsanitary which is why it was so triggering that we got that letter the hate mail <laughs> that you would call it for a podcast because it it's like these same stereotypes perpetuated that are so dangerous right and he was like you can buy a building and you can build it but just not in my backyard I don't want it in near me and I want you to go over across the river, go to Ramsey, you know, that's where all the poor people are. So that's what you want. And um, right now the city is working on a process of renaming the James Short Parkade, you know, which is as, great. By the way, as somebody who's part of a reconciliation action group, like we're doing mm -hmm. the renaming of Langevin yeah. and and right now and, we're going after John A. McDonald. Like if you need mm -hmm. our support, we'll write that letter, we'll help you in any capacity. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah, this well, luckily, because of the work that we've been doing in Chinatown, the, the city was like, we have to rename it. This guy was racist, you know, but then we started doing engagement on what we should name it. And there, of course, there are Chinese people who like are just like blind spots, right? Like, oh, he wasn't racist. Like I went to that school. It was fine. Like it was totally, you know, and totally just did not, you know, racism deniers are like there and they're so fragile, like, but 
when you unpeel the layers and you try to understand like, why are you so pressed about this? Like, why don't you want us to call a racist a racist? And it's like, they're scared, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're scared of the negative connotations. They don't, again, they don't want to be seen as that rebel rouser, like the person- Troublemaker, yep. Exactly. Like, you know, it's like, I'm living in peace. Like, I don't want to be associated with people who cause trouble. It's like, let leave the past in the past. And it's like, no, we can't. Yeah. This is why we have people who are so emboldened to be racist towards Chinese during the pandemic. This is why Jason Kenney was like, called it the bat flu. This is why so many things happen. Like people just let this shit slip. And it's like, that yeah. is not tolerable. Like this is stuff where I'm always like, man, how do I re- want to be remembered in 50 years? What kind of stuff do I want to say? And it's so embarrassing that they just think that it's okay to kind of say these super, and people love to call them microaggressions. I'm like, no, they're aggressions. Like it's yeah. not even okay. it's full, <laughs> full rudeness, you know, like constantly alluding the fact that we're not as clean, not as smart or um, that we're all we're capitalists, like all Chinese people care about is money or like they don't. Yeah. It's just like all the different stereotypes that I've heard over the years. It's so frustrating. And it just comes from such a place of ignorance. And it's especially sad when it comes from our own community. Like the call is coming from the inside, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, yep. No, and I know exactly what that's like as a native, like we're, you know, a lot of us are colonized. A lot of us uh, don't want to be seen as troublemakers. Um, and my own family is like that. Like they're, you just listen to authority, Michelle, and it's like, nope, no. Um, some are, not all of them. Yeah. <laughs> and it was hard, even when I started volunteering in Chinatown, my dad was like, Chinatown, like, don't bother. It's so dramatic. Like, there's so much politics involved. Um, people aren't fake. Like, there's and there's so much I could do, talk about, like, just internalized racism within Chinatown. You know, it's like people against people, but it's just people are so scared of calling somebody Caucasian racist and they're so scared of um being seen as like I don't know on the wrong side I guess and they think it's like being white is cool and great in Calgary you know and so um you have a lot of people that are like "Ooh, I got a photo with the premier I got a photo with the mayor I this is what I want like I want to be in those circles that's what they're like right it's like that shows that you have power it shows that you um are sitting with the right people and it's like girl they're letting you sit with them it doesn't mean shit like no they're using you as a token like you know yeah exactly yeah I've tried to engage with those Emma and I honestly it is such a waste of time and it's even worse when it's like a person of color that's either the mayor or a counselor and they're like what problem um or you give them the solutions and they're like yeah well we had a committee once and that's enough and it's like no you never implemented a single thing yes not a single thing that is exactly the problem is there's no implementation there's folks that try and there's lots of support and I don't know, it just goes nowhere. It's like, oh, well, let's sit around and talk about it some more. And then like, the, you know, it's just like at a certain point, you just have to do what's right and you have to take action and you have to be bold about it. It's like, why be a politician and just keep pushing paper around and do status quo shit? Like, right. Money's not even that good. Like, no, it's why, you know? Um, but I would definitely say that during the pandemic, I have seen more allyship and more people curious and interested in the Chinatown story and also understanding, well, 
obviously with the BLM movement and stuff like that, there's a lot of people who are starting to question like their bias, their prejudice and, you know, their internalized racism and, and realizing, you know, there's work to do. And there's a lot of people who are in straight up denial and they might be, but it's like, whatever, like, I'm not here to convert the people who don't want to be converted. I'm here to provide resources for those who are willing to learn. Yep. So, um, and Chinatown is a perfect example of that. Like from the surface, it looks like everything is fine, you know, like a cute little community, but under the layers, it's like so much strife. And so people have fought so many years, you know, for, their independence in this community to do what they want to do and to try to encourage people to understand their cultural practices and, um, you know, to help promote culture in the city, like Chinatowns are pride, like Chinese pride. I want to see a proud Chinese pride in Calgary because they've earned it beyond or racism they've had to endure. Um, and the other part is, uh, as a native, you know, we have the friendship center that was in that Chinatown, yeah. when I, you know, it, and I don't know if you know, but the Chinese were the only ones who let us eat in their restaurants for forever. I've so, heard that. Yeah. yeah my, um, um, <laughs> it kind of hit me because uh, a friend of mine told me that. And when I was having visits with my native mom, we only went to the Chinese restaurant and I yeah. never like really questioned why. Yeah. But my dad, you know, he said such derogatory things about Chinese. So it, I felt like, you know, everything I did with my mom was wrong, everything. And that was, um, you know, so there's like, there's a term of parental, parental alienation. But I mean, when you really unpack it, it was just racism, just yeah. point blank racism and sexism. And um, I actually had like Chinese nanny at one point in time and I started to speak and um they were like oh we can't have her speak that language and then got rid of her and i yeah. i just to this day i'm like who was my chinese nanny because she obviously <laughs> was kind and loving you know yeah. who was that so but that it it's, doesn't matter it's that bigger picture that um you know that, that underlined racism like you talked about people willing to want to do that work i mean i'm constantly unpacking my my internalized racism but also you know the anti-blackness that white supremacy puts on us and the anti-asian narrative that puts on us puts on us as well as uh anti-sex worker there was a a wonderful woman from your community who talked about anti um sex work images and how that's connected to vietnamese asian chinese the, the entire and, and it's true because I grew up watching Arnold movies and, and yeah. all sorts of violence. Um, Vietnam Wars, my dad was yeah. so into watching all of that kind of stuff. So I've watched it all. And yeah. um, and of course, you when you're in a white supremacist environment that teaches you these anti-bias kind of stereotypes, you I have to unpack them too. Yeah. So like it's been really eye-opening and I appreciate you and and you know act and racism, so many of these organizations doing this work so that people like myself can start to really unpack it. Um I I was uh just came across the six surviving Chinese folks that uh survived the Titanic and how yeah. they were way too ashamed to talk about it. And I remember taking a ghost tour in Inglewood and one of the white guys who had survived it, it is rumored that he was buried with his feet pointing at the city in, as a kind of a snub because when <laughs> they found out he survived the Titanic, he was ostracized and he was a white guy. So I yeah. can't imagine what it would have been like for the Chinese because yeah. um, they were already ostracized. And, uh, and even in Banff, like there's this bankhead 
and there's um, wild growing rhubarb and they won't take it out because it's a, it's a park. But the reason why they're there is because when they were originally doing the mining of Bankhead, uh, they ostracized the Chinese, like in every part mm -hmm. of Canada, like there's a Chinese town because they were ostracized yeah. and they started growing rhubarb. And then when they like shut down everything, they were like, oh, we'll just let the rhubarb grow. So <laughs> I love looking at rhubarb because it's like an act of resilience every time I see it out and bound. <laughs> well, have you uh, seen that documentary, All My Father's Relations? Mm. about it's basically about the Chinese that worked on the railroads but back in the day even though they were here sacrificing their lives like doing all the shitty work that they had to do the white workers would not let the Chinese camp with them like they had to bring their all their own shit with them they had to set up like two kilometers away from the white camp you couldn't eat the same food you couldn't be a part of it like it was horrible but in BC the only community similarly that would like allow Chinese to stay with them was the indigenous communities, right? And there, so there's this, I think this movie started, like the documentary starts like in China where it's like, this person talks about how their grandparents had pictures with, you know, cheap and people from the, the area they were staying in in BC. And they, this whole story about how finding that um, relationship again and what it meant. And it's, I think these days there's a lot of anti-Black uh, hate in and anti-indigenous hate inside the Chinese community and it's like for all the well if even between Chinese and Hong Kong and Taiwanese there's a lot of hate there too but honestly it boils down to like this a ton of it is like capitalism enforced like classism you know where it's like oh they're poor so that's even it's not that they're black it's not that they're indigenous or brown or Indian or whatever it's because they're poor and we don't want to be poor because if you're poor that's even worse like at least you know we have money and we can do stuff and that's that's how we can control our destiny and our power and that's why you don't see yeah you don't see a ton of allyship in our community especially with it within our elders and um folks that have grown up here and even the other day we were talking about um like you brought up the thing about sex work. And so a few years ago, there was a development that was slated for Chinatown and the community was really upset about the fact that there was a hotel portion proposed, right? And at the time it was just like, they were like, we don't want sex workers in our community, right? That's all they said. And it's like, it's like, okay, it's a different time. Like, you know, it's really actually not affordable for sex workers to constantly book hotel rooms. Like there's cheaper options out there, but regardless, you have the stigma about it. Right. And it's like, let's unpack that. And it's because like for a hundred years, like white people would come to China and Vietnam and stuff like that, traffic women into Canada to work as sex or Canada and the U S to work as sex slaves. Right. Like we basically didn't have, and tons of obviously indigenous women went through the same situation and they were completely exploited so of course they don't want to be associated with that right like they don't want the shame and the guilt and the history and it's so sad because when you think about these are our daughters these are our parents right and it's atrocious what has happened and it led to like the fetishization of Asian women in popular media it was disgusting it's um, so gross I can't even yeah. but and that's what we went through as well right the first thing they did was sexualize us and yeah um you know and of course that's led to missing and murdered indigenous women that's and absolutely. femicide in general all across the globe it's not okay and no. um so it, it's really important that we highlight that too because uh, I, I know it makes our elders and 
and such uncomfortable. But I mean, if we're going, I, I want to save space for my daughter to grow up in. Absolutely. And if we don't unpack it, we don't talk about it, then we can't fix it. And I know the police don't care. I, I've, I've worked with them. I've tried so hard to talk about 231 calls to justice, the 94 calls to action. We still don't have an action plan with either one of them. Like yeah. same with the city. I was, I was, I was so angry when they did those anti-racism conversations. Cause I'm like, you literally just gaslit us because I heard, yeah. I've seen, heard some of the um, counselors like, oh my God, I had no idea. So I'm like, so all those 10 years of me talking to you and engaging with you, writing you letters, going to your studio, yeah. that meant fucking nothing. Thanks a lot. Thanks. So like, I, I just am so done with trying to engage with politicians that given we give them the solutions, we give them the answers and they still won't do anything about it. And ironically, when you talk about um, allyship, like uh, right now we have George Hall and I think our mayor, Jody Gonda, I think she got this as well. But anyway, we have these really like white supremacist, weirdo, yellow vesting, anti-vax um, folks that are protesting in front of their houses. Yeah. And ironically, if they cared enough to listen to us and implement what we had to say, then actually it would help them because anti-racism education helps everyone, not just Absolutely. you know the indigenous people. And that and that's the problem. They say it. Oh well, the natives are complaining and the natives are bringing us solutions, but it's only going to help the natives. And that's not a big enough voting base for me to yeah. care and it's like oh but now look at you have these white supremacists in front of your house scaring your daughter so now it's a problem thanks thanks yeah. a lot yeah no it is like stuff like that over the past year like so much performative action so much just like empty promises you know and it it is frustrating because people get exhausted like this is heart work you know yes. like it's like it impacts your heart and your soul and you're like yeah. I'm like depleted. Like, it's like, sometimes I'm just like, damn, how do I keep doing this? It's so hard. And the more you talk about it, the more you learn about it. It's like when people say like ignorance is bliss, it's like, yeah, it is. Cause like, I wish I didn't know about this stuff. And now that I know it's like, how do I not, how do I not do anything? Like when you know, you have to do something. Yeah. And like, it isn't fair and it is true. It's like, if you don't speak up for other people, especially if they don't look like you or live, have the same demographics of you, dude, no one's going to freaking speak up for you when your time comes, you know, and unless you have an enormous amount of privilege to like hire people to do it for you. And like, you know, no one likes to see a white man down. That's what I always say. Like they will come in droves, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's really, and this is what we talked about with the Chinese community. Obviously we had the BLM mural in Chinatown and that, that was used completely Oh, I can't like, it was like, here's a trap and you can walk into it, into rebel media's trap. So basically for folks listening who don't know what happened, um, the, a group in Calgary, a nonprofit group who aimed to create murals, let, you know, designed and painted by black artists was originally going to paint one on, in our, on a prominent downtown building, but the building had an existing mural of like white hands releasing a dove into the air. And they were just like, no, you can't replace this gorgeous painting with a BLM mural. And so it was really traumatic for those folks. And then somebody in Chinatown was like, hey, why don't you do it on this building? You know, like nice enough. And then they, with any, anything in Chinatown, like is traumatic because everybody wants to have a say, but they were just like, no, you don't have to do um, consultation. We already talked to the community. Just go ahead and paint it. So of course they start painting. It's like a mural of John Weir. It's a, called the guide and the protector. And it's like, in you know, 
to describe it, it's basically like um, two folks, two black individuals like riding a, a bull in clouds, surrounded by clouds. And so of course people in Chinatown were like, where did this come from and what is this about? But, um, and they were concerned, you know, and at the time rebel media was like, this is perfect. I can, you know, co-op this movement and talk about how BLM is causing strife to the Chinese community, blah, blah, blah. And what it ended up really doing was making Chinese look super racist. And there was, of course, when, and then they did consultation after the fact. And it was like, yeah, a lot of these folks were like, just why in Chinatown? Like, why would we have like a mural of black people in Chinatown? And it's like, well, why would anybody have a Chinese mural of anything anywhere else? For the same reason, we should celebrate and honor all cultures and all backgrounds. It's not like we're in this, do you really want to stay in this enclave forever and never have people show art or anything? Like imagine if a white person said that about a mural of Chinese people, you know, at city hall, right? Like they'd be like, why is that here? And how would you feel? It's horrible. And somebody that actually raised this point that I'll always forget is like, or never forget is Patty Pond with like the Calgary Arts Development Authority, right? She was just like, just like I wanna see Chinese art throughout the city, we have to accept art from different cultures in your community as well, right? And it, it just, I think a lot of people were, it was very similar, like during the consultation where it's like, no, it's not that I'm racist, it's just, I don't like, you know, and it's like the, I'm not racist, but I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but, and it's yeah. like, no, you are like, it's, but it's okay. Like, it's not, it's fine. You can grow from it and you can learn how to not be one. It's just like, you've been basically conditioned to become one just based on society and capitalism and trauma. And so, and survival, like basically this is what happens when it's like you are trying to survive. So it's improving it, that had to happen for the community to really look at internalized racism and anti-blackness within the Asian community and really think about like, oh, maybe that is like rude or maybe that is racist, you know, the yeah. way that I'm thinking without even really thinking that it would be, right? Like, but unfortunately it was just so painful. And then you have people like us who are volunteering, who are trying to be um, as engaged and inclusive and diverse as possible. And we're like, oh shit, like, now everybody thinks that we're racist. Like how now we have to do the work to like, you know, it's just like, oh, another thing, add it to the list of work to do, which yeah, is like, I, yeah. I hear you so hard because they're, you know, um, like my, my own family raised in white schools by cat run by Catholics. Right. So that model, um, native is like, that's such a strong sentiment in my world mm -hmm. too. And you know, quick to say something anti whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 no. And it, it's really harmful because like we have, I literally have two trans cousins and my own yeah. mom, she, she just can't seem to wrap her head around the whole pronouns thing and yes. uh, dead naming thing. She can't do it. And I, I'm just like, Ugh. and I'm trying to love her and have that respect because like she has head injury. So yeah. anyone else, I'd be like, oh, it's totally fine, but it's my mom. And I'm like, mom, can you just learn this? But you can't. And it's so hard. Yeah. Anyway, I, uh, I know that struggle and it hurts and it sucks. And I remember hearing, um, you know, anti-Indigenous sentiment from the Chinese community yeah. so, through so many different things as well. But again, it's also you and I know rebel media, but all media is so guilty yeah. of finding the one person who's like willing to say, well, I hate natives because, and, or I hate Chinese because, yeah. and, and that's who they give the mic to, not you, 
not Patty, yeah. not Teresa. No, 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 no. They give it to that guy. <laughs> yeah, and it's, yeah, I always say that it's like, it's very dangerous to kind of get, to, well, even for community engagement of any kind, it's like, unless you're educating everybody and providing them with all the resources so that they can provide an educated and informed response, you are going to get these very one-sided hurtful comments from all sides, you know? Yes. And this is a problem with community engagement that we have today. It's like, you can't, it's not just engagement for the sake of engagement, because it's like, well, a lot of people just don't know what they don't know. And to like myself as a perfect example, how I do engagement in Chinatown today in 2022 is drastically different from how I do it, how the comments that I made in 2016, you know, based okay. on things that I have learned, based on things, learning about intergenerational trauma, learning about planning policy, learning about you know, what is important for like how the city does planning and city growth, right? And also the role of um, engagement. And so it's like, yeah, I, I can provide much more fulsome and much more informed. Well, not, I don't want to say more informed because everybody's opinions are still valid, but it's just like more fulsome participation, I would say yeah. now with better education. I had to seek that out basically by myself and I had the resources and the privilege to be able to do that. And so I always say like engagement cannot stand on its own. It has to come with um, information, like education as well, right? Because this is why people are so like, well, anti-vax policy, you know, um, restriction policy, like why they don't get it. And it's like, well, we got some learning to do, you know, and it's like, no one's focusing on the learning aspect of it. Honestly, and, and what I find frustrating, you know, you listen to my podcast, the same information from before to today. And mm -hmm. with the exception of adding um, act to end racism, by the way, yeah. um, it, but it's that I give you the resources and I still have people private messaging me. Um, what, what resource are you talking about? And it's like, it's really clear. You've never listened to the podcast one single time, let alone write, wrote anything down. <laughs> but it, and, and I find that even with community engagement, like you can give people read this, it's free and they still won't. And it, and that like that is a hard thing where it's like people are committed to misunderstanding. And that's, you know, I, you can try, but there are some people who are trying to do the good work. So the Reconciliation Action Group, I think would be, um, you know, an, an example of people that are like, you know, devoted to actually doing that work. And they come a lot from my book club as well. So yeah. actually we should do a book club um on indigenous and chinese relations in canada oh, that's that we should totally do that yeah. yeah because uh actually it is chinese new year coming up do you want yes. to talk about those celebrations at all or um so we there aren't any um celebrations really happening in chinatown because of covid restrictions so unfortunately but asian heritage month is going to be working on um an event i believe at the city hall atrium and so there's going to be three days of performances and vendors like Asian makers and things like that, that will be at, um, at the city hall atrium on Thursday, Friday, Saturday evening. Mm. And so that's something I don't have a ton of information on that yet, but I'll definitely share it when I, when I get it. And then in the meantime, there's two great projects that you can check out if you'd like to learn about Chinese history. One is called reflective urbanism, which is a project that was funded through the city of Calgary um, public art program. So they did an artist residency in Chinatown. We were able to attract an architect um, and artist from New York, Chinatown, who came here and basically interviewed and heard stories from a lot of the folks who grew up in the neighborhood in the forties all the way to now. And 
they did a 3D model of Chinatown. So now you can click on the buildings and it has like a full history of the building, how it started, family stories. It's amazing. And it's so like, it was so emotional for me to see because it was in, it unearthed pictures of the life behind the buildings. And to be able to see Chinese joy was just like, oh my God, I love that. You know, like these families together in their lives, because it's like, we talk about it on our tours, but obviously the, the whole purpose with the story was like, us telling our story, you know, mm -hmm. us telling our history, not just like what's in the historical context paper from the city of Calgary, what's like available that they've pieced together from like news articles from the time, but actually stories from the folks themselves living in the neighborhood. And um, it was that, so that is one project it's really amazing. She actually got funding to do one in New York as well. So it kind of like our city piloted this project that is now hopefully going to, um, take stock and do 3D renderings of Chinese communities all across the world, which is really cool and really important because again, they're slowly disappearing one by one. And um, the second project is, so the podcast that Gabriel Yi and I and Vicky Chow worked on, which was funded by StoryHive. The whole point of the podcast was not to show you like a tour of Chinatown food and restaurants to this one writer's dismay but it was really just about sharing our history it's sharing like stories from three business three businesses in Chinatown who have been here who are starting during the pandemic who have been you know Golden Inn has been here since the 70s Paper Lantern opened during the pandemic and then the new gallery's been in the community since 2009 and or 2013 and so it was more just like, it's called Views from Chinatown we're sharing a perspective but this one letter that we got they were really pressed about the fact that we we just did that and we didn't showcase like, I don't know, that we didn't do a tourism show. So that's like the kind of boldness that people have where it's like, they'll, yeah. And I'm sure everybody gets hate mail, but it was just like the shit that they were saying. And then you, it was like, oh, don't forget to talk about how Chinese people eat shark fin soup and da da da. And so it's like this whole like veganism, vegetarian, like Build. Okay, let's have some solidarity in this. Uh, you know, yeah. those um, oh, folks, yeah. they've really attacked the Indigenous community. Yes. You know, absolutely. like it's not enough. They stole our land, stole our resources, forced us to assimilate to their language, culture, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But it's relocated us. Now, now you have to steal the culture we have of actually food. Yeah. Thanks. We have, there's already food insecurity. So I, yeah. I, I'm like, so I have no time for a lot of those organizations. Yeah. None. Yeah. No, it's so frustrating. And then, yeah, it was just like, we, we were like, this is, it was really painful at first. Cause I was like, damn, like who would waste their time to mail a letter, you know? But now looking back, I'm just like, I hope this person just like felt, you know, that's the thing. They like felt emboldened and felt good that they can do something like that. And they knew exactly what they were doing. Cause there's no return address. No, you know, no name. Coward. Like they wanted to be white supremacists are such cowards. Oh yeah. my God, they're such cowards. Well, that's why they wear cloaks and stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and white pointy hats. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. But it's, this is the kind of stuff that people think that it's okay to say, right? It's people, things from Argent. And like, similarly, like, there are horrible stereotypes and prejudices and bigotry that exists in the Chinese community to other communities of culture, even within Chinese to Chinese, you know? And it's, it's horrible. And it's like, this, it's like being, it's like bringing it back to the beginning when I was talking about like how to be, you know, being a kid in a school where you weren't popular. I wanted to be like them. I wanted to make sure that I 
assimilated so that I didn't have to fucking get bullied anymore. You know, yeah. this is, and so this is exactly what's happening in a macro context with all these cultural groups, right? Yeah. It's just like, we don't want to be bullied anymore. No, we no. We be and, seen as human, you know? Right? And, yeah. and, and, you know, part of that, um, not just diversity, but the enrichment of this, mm-hmm. this place that we call Calgary now, you know, um, when you add in the Blackfoot culture and then all the visiting First Nations and then yeah. all the different cultures that have come here, like so I, the Ukrainians, for example, pierogies, yeah. sausage, I will be for that forever. <laughs> Cabbage rolls, I'm down for that forever. Chinese food, I'm down for that forever. And I should mention my auntie. Um, so my un- one of my uncles married a Chinese woman um, and um, she's here and she's prominent and, um, you know, her and her mom, uh, they they are always involved in the community as well. And I'm blessed because she was the one uh, child they had. And yeah. uh, so she married into our family who had, like I have all these aunts and uncles and yeah. we have all the cousins, we have everybody, right? So she loves our big family get togethers because we're all together and it's multi-generational and she brings her mom and she always brings the best ribs every single Christmas. <laughs> and I miss, I, I've hated the pandemics because we, yes. you know, I can't get together for uh, Thanksgiving <sighs> or for Christmas with all of Did my families. Know? And yes. anyway, so it, it, it is important to me to celebrate that because whenever they go traveling what do they bring they always bring something to um to my daughter so she has all of these like she she has like this uh chinese uh purse that she puts all of her smudge stuff in (laughs) it's like i know it doesn't make sense but it makes sense if you're a calgarian yeah and and i think that you know i want to share that with you and i want to share that with everybody want i want to be able to proudly say this is my neighbor but this is my aunt this is my my family too so it's it's bigger than that so we're all interconnected and I um I believe we can grow fam- um community and I think even this conversation between you and me that's community care of like I get what you're saying <laughs> I know what you're doing and keep doing yeah. the good work as hard as it is and being you know there's there's knives coming from all sides at times but when when they put down their knives then you have this beautiful uh, mural you have this beautiful community and this you know beautiful parade you whatever it is that we're celebrating so i just hope you know i appreciate the work you're doing and i i am so grateful you came to share it so what i'm going to do is take all the links and and your twitter and everyone and yeah. share it with everybody <laughs> in the hopes that they start following that work too and and uh you know because yeah. we we need to like the with the lunar um New Year's. I mean, that that seems to be the the time we all celebrate that culture anyway. And I, I mean, it should be throughout the year all the time anyway. So yeah. <laughs> you know. the whole thing, even with like celebrate the indigenous indigenous gathering place, right? Like it was like, of course we should have one, and there should have always been one. And it's like, it's not. You know, people are so quick to be like, okay, Chinese New Year from Chinatown. That's when we accept. That's when you get to express yourself. Um, Calgary Stampede. That's when you get to uh, raise your teepees and do your work, and you know we can pat you on the head. And it's like God, like it's just it's so disrespectful, you know. And that's that's all. And so I'm really excited to see the work happening because a lot of people very fondly remember the Aboriginal Friendship Center in Chinatown. You know, it was like a place for Indigenous families to go and gather and share. You know, and right now that place doesn't exist. And uh, yeah. I know. I remember, um, you know, and, and that's that, oh, well, that's where all the dirty people go. And it's like, yeah, shut up, yeah. shut up. You we racist. had a Look. lot of, um, 
at the time in Chinatown, there was a lot of Indigenous uh, households and along with Black households. And unfortunately, there was a lot of segregation within the community, right? It was like, that side of the street is where the Black people live. This side of the street is where the Natives live. This is where, and that some of the kids growing up in the neighborhood, like it was like they got their own little town to bully people in, right? And this is where they felt power. And so they were like, recently, some of the folks who are now in their 60s lamented how embarrassed and how ashamed they are for how they treated the brown and black kids in the community like you can't walk on the side of the sidewalk you can't and he they were just like damn like that is wrong right yeah. and it and it takes time and people and it's like okay well we don't want you to feel like shit forever it's just like please speak up for us when something goes wrong you know yeah. and so like, that's so like that's so good that people are realizing <laughs> what they did was wrong I'm like, I'm actually, I think that's a celebration because then yeah, they're going to oh, heal, sure. you know? Well, and to talk about it publicly too, right? Because it is, it isn't nobody, it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing to be like, oh, I treated this person like garbage. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Well, and I'm really happy to hear all of this, frankly. And I, I just hope that we can start putting together better community projects. And I always laugh when people send hate mail after a project you've done. And it's like, what are you doing? I'd yeah. love to, love to well, know what your project is so I could celebrate it, right? Like, come on. So yeah, the part two, the part three, the part four, it's going to yeah. look even better once you get a chance to do it. I wouldn't even ever like write something, you know, like there's so much hate. I'm just like, why would I go out of my way? Like, girl, I'm busy. Like, I do not have time to just sit behind and keyboard warrior, like comment on shit. Cause it's like, I barely have time to say thank you, to have the notes of thank you, like sending yeah. somebody something that's like, man, you guys have been amazing. I'm, I've yeah. gone through hell the last little uh, few months. Yeah. Like I've had so much community care and I can't yeah. thank people enough for it. And I, and I honestly wish I could do more. So, yeah. it, you know, like the, the community care aspect matters and for folks who get it, like, obviously they're going to send you all of the thank yous and accolades and any of my listeners I hope you consider going and checking out these projects and sending her all the thank yous and accolades <laughs> <laughs> but you know uh, even our book club so the indigenous book club that we have like I tell our the people doing the good work write a good review because again I don't know who these people are that they managed to take the time and write the worst review ever right so I, it's almost like I've been debating do we just shut off reviews for indigenous books honestly because. it's like turning off comments it's like sometimes you just got to protect your peace you know yeah. and it's like you know that it's good work just like it doesn't matter yeah. right like what are the reviews going to do like you know it's yeah. well obviously you want good ones but hopefully listeners and everything understand that anything you you know share is going to be worthwhile so yeah <laughs> yeah no kidding well thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate thank it you. if you want to stay on and listen to my exit you're more than welcome sure, and, I will. yeah. yeah and feel free to chime in as well as we go so that that way if you want to give a little bit of history to the act to end racism or anything just don't hesitate so thank you again alice for being on i appreciate it i honestly feel this so refreshed i feel like <laughs> yes other people get it and i think it's partly because i have covid i haven't been out in community because of yeah. covid the last couple <laughs> of years so like this is just so like enriching for my soul so i really mean it from the bottom of my heart thank you for being on my show oh, and thank you for COVID. inviting me and like, sharing together it's like any opportunity i get to do this is just like i'm like another piece of the puzzle 
you know, now on to the next. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm proud that this podcast has given solutions and cultural safety training, cultural first aid, and almost all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. I want to say thank you to authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, Alicia Fritkin of heretohelp.bc.ca about uh, what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. But if you were to Google um, how to be an ally to Indigenous, um, there are so many articles out there now that their work and those other um, pieces of work are action tools that I've said in my podcast. So please support work like that as part of your reconciliation work and settler understandings. I'm just lucky to highlight them and repeat them here. Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence that marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. And we talked about it very extensively here today. Uh, what is internalized racism by Donna Bevins? She's a great resource of racialequitytools.org and there's so much to discuss there. So if you are a person of color um, and you wanna fit the model minority or you wanna you know, white code, these are things to help give you tools to be like, you know what's wrong, but you don't know how to like undo this. This is where you need to go. Um, Do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee. They have a great link about how to engage with folks that are being awful. So if you're on the C train, you see a Muslim woman being uh, targeted. These are the ways to um, intervene in a in a harm reduction type of way, in a de-escalation mm -hmm. way. These are there's so many resources out there. If you see or experience racism, report it to acttoendracism.ca or text at 587-507-3838 because they'll just send you that link right away. Um, Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and in public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded, which I highlighted here uh, repeatedly on this show. No more, honor our words, honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. They don't recognize marginalized in their budgets with gender equity plus if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities. Know that your vote for those parties or that person directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. They don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism. They literally have zero business running should be understood by all parties, local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. A really great article I said out loud is that uh, truth before truth, how non-Indigenous Canadians become allies. And again, there's so many resources on that. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we've talked about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242. 242-3310. It is toll free and open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can also text on their website at hopeforwellness.ca. For more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. It is a 24-7 um, crisis line to give support. 
for non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area with the functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566. The 60 Scoops Indigenous Society of Alberta is ssisa.ca, and you can look for hashtag survivor driven. Again, if you, are, if you see or experience racism, report it at actandracism.ca or text at 587 507 3838. The Trevor Project has a ton of resources for LGBTQ2. Uh, you can check out lifevoice.ca, crisis supports, LGBTQ2, uh, or sorry, LGBTQ crisis supports. I just say it with the two, even though a lot of the um, community still are they still have a lot of white supremacy in LGBT. So I'm hoping we can start changing that. And um, anyway, the Trevor Project, uh, there's a youth line, the, the kids help phone 1-800-668-6868. Violence is my everyday reality. Every indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started a podcast to speak freely without interruption, without tone police, without leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions. Um, and more than just a two clip sound bite. Uh, a lot of people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs, even if they don't know about colonialism or the constant surveillance <laughs> of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, our rights, microaggressions, mm -hmm. people dealing with internalized racism who become gatekeepers that survive off the status quo, or people who are so in their trauma that they stop people from doing the work and deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people and marginalized people. Thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be blunt and strong. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It's through her. I'm a second generation proud Calgarian, but again, I want to emphasize, do not call yourself native Calgarian unless you're native. Uh, thank you, Darcy, for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, father of our child, and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, we are blessed to learn from daily. We are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. And I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My native or my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing support. Thank you for I, I appreciate you listening. I can't believe when I see some of the numbers of people who are listening or watching. I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, for those who cannot afford to give, love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or your questions. And I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not traditional. And my beautiful cousin responded, or you'd be in my dish. Thanks for listening. <laughs>